You know, um, this week, I hope you went and voted. Um, but this week, election week is also, it's a good opportunity for me to find out, you know, do you really believe when I say that God's love is impossible and that it's very, very difficult? And the standard to which we need to hold ourselves if we're going to say we love like God loves. And you remember a couple weeks ago we read that passage, um, bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. So how many of you, as soon as you heard the election results, because nationally there was kind of this split thing that happened, you know, we had Republicans winning some things and Democrats winning you know, some things. How many of you, if you're a like, Republican, how many of you prayed that God would bless the House of Representatives? And if you're a Democrat, how many of you prayed that God would bless Donald Trump and the U.S. Senate? Let that marinate in your head before you start jumping so fast, saying, oh yeah, I can love like God. I can love like Jesus. That's the kind of love he wants. And don't get hung up on that right now, because if you're not really good at it, yeah, join the club. Most of us aren't very good at it. But what we need to know is that is the kind of love that God has. That's why it's an impossible love. And so we come to these, you know, when we hear this, and, and, and we're talking about what it means to be a healthy church, and as we just sung, that, that we want that church to be founded on this impossible love. And we know that that impossible love can only come to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so the church is founded on faith in Jesus Christ that results in this impossible love. And we know faith in Jesus Christ is only as good as Jesus Christ. And we know that this church is founded on Jesus Christ. So the healthy churches. And last week we talked about we need to identify the core of the church, of the healthy church. If a, if a church is going to grow and continue to grow, we need to know who is the healthy core. And you know, I could have had a, a sign up up here and said, come sign up to be part of the healthy core of Wildlife Baptist Church that would have been meaningless. And I told you last week, even though we don't know all the details, we don't know where God is going to lead us, we don't know what he's going to do with our church, there are things that we can do right now, every one of us can do right now, more important than signing a paper saying, I'm part of the healthy core. More important than sending me an email and saying, I want to be part of the healthy core. We can do something right now and we talked about them last week. You can pray. You can pray for this church like you're part of the healthy core. If you want to ask yourself, am I part of the healthy core of this church? How often do you pray, not for the people in this church, but how, much, how often do you pray for this church and for the health of this church? How often? And what are you praying for? Everybody can do that. The other thing you can do is you can 
You can show up. You can show up like someone who's part of a healthy church. Show up not just here. Show up at other things that we do. Show up at other Bible study opportunities, other opportunities to serve together, other opportunities to fellowship. You can do that right now. I can guarantee you none of these things take special training. Just showing up. All of us can find ways to serve even now. Big and small ways. We can serve. We can serve each other like we're part of a healthy church. And we can give. We can give like we're part of a healthy church. We can give like we believe in what this church is. As, you know, Stan, in Sunday school today, Stan brought up this idea that some people, and I agree with him, that some people have the idea that that some people who are part of the church, by the way, have this idea that the church is not them. That there's some other organization here that's the church. So whenever I'm talking about the church, I'm not talking about you or me. I'm talking about, I don't know what they think, (laughs) but it's some institution. Uh, No, church isn't some legal entity. Church is you and me. It's us. And I'm going to tell you, God did a good thing preparing me for ministry. He let me be the son of a minister. And he not only let me be the son of a minister, he let me be the son of a minister who, first of all, my dad was pastor in a church in um, Terrell, Oklahoma. Other than my sister and my wife, I wonder how many of you have ever heard of Terrell, Oklahoma. Oh, is there, oh yes, Mary, Mary Alice says. I remember, she has relatives near there. Um, bustling town of 600. Good 600. And I used to, you know, I kind of joke around, my dad was the first mega church pastor. Because our church used to have like 100 to 120. Think about it. He had something like 20% of Terrell coming to his church. Think if we had 20% of Honolulu coming here, we'd have 200,000 people here, right? So my dad was mega church pastor. In, but not really. We were in a rural town and, and we had nothing. My dad was going to school 90 miles away. Sometimes the church, I mean, they gave us a place to stay and my dad got a little salary. But sometimes, you know, this is a farming community, they would, they would pay us in the ways farmers pay people. And I still remember when my mom told me, oh, uh, one of the church members is giving us a side of beef. I didn't even know what that meant, side of beef. You know, well, I found out because I came home and in the kitchen was half a cow. They apparently just got a chainsaw and chopped that booger right in half. There was another time when Another farmer, you know, traumatized me for a little while, but I got over it, said, you know, told my dad and mom, if you guys come over and help us, you know, slaughter and, and clean our chickens, you know, you can have, you know, I think they gave us half of them. So I was like six years old, and, and I still remember just kind of terrified seeing those 
chickens getting their heads cut off and flapping around. Chickens were so much nicer when they were just nuggets and, uh, you know, in smaller pieces. You know, they gave us those chickens, and it took us a while before we could eat them. But eventually, you know, like I said, I got over it. You know, and even when my dad came here, my dad came here, and, and we were out in, in Eva Beach. And some of you have never been to real Eva Beach. And where we grew up in real Eva Beach is a very different place. And I think it prepared me because, because I knew that if I went into ministry... If I went into becoming a pastor, I really knew what it meant to say, like, it doesn't matter what the place looks like. We don't even need a place. I hope you know that when I talk about being committed to a healthy church, I'm not talking about being committed to to a building that has air conditioning and carpet. If we have a church that has a building with air conditioning and carpet, that's a bonus. But if we have a church that has to meet across the street in the park, that's, that's all right with me. That's what a healthy church is. A healthy church isn't a place that can say, we got a campus. We have an education space. We have a fellowship hall. I think we've gotten this notion in our heads of what, what marks a good church, a healthy church. And we're just... It, it more than confuses us, it distracts us because we come, become more obsessed with this than we are with being the church. Simple things. Pray, give, show up, serve. And I told you a fifth one. And the fifth one is this, invite. Invite people. I cited that statistic that, and again, People could be lying, but they did a survey that said something like 80 to 85% of people in America said they would come to church or they would at least strongly consider it if someone would invite them. If someone would invite them. You know what that means? That means that if you went out and invited people every week, this place would be full of visitors every week. Think about that. And you might go, well, you don't know my friends. You know, I don't know who those 80% were, but not my friends. Get new friends. You know, find people that you can invite. And what better time as we go into this holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, even the New Year's time. People are thinking so much about, you know, oh, I, I, you know, I want to I go to church. I want to do this. I want to do that. Sometimes people are thinking about New Year's resolutions. I want to get my life right. Invite. I don't know. Again, I, I'm trying to help you understand it's not magic. We are the church. If things are going to happen, it's because we're doing them. And it's because we're being equipped and God's spirit is empowering us to do them. Well, we talked about identifying the core, and now this week we're talking about committing to the cause. Now let me tell you how, how God is different from the way the world works. The way the world works is this. The first thing you do 
is you, is you consider the cost of something. So when my youngest daughter was going to, you know, deciding what college to go to, you know, made her do all these cost-benefit, you know, kind of tables and charts. And, and I wanted her to explain to me the cost before we committed. That's, that's the way the world does things. It's not the way God does things. What God wants first is he wants your commitment. He doesn't want your commitment to be based on whether it's cost-effective, whether you think you have the resources or not, whether you think that you can do it. God wants you to commit to the core, commit to the cause, because you know and you believe in your deepest heart that it is worth it. Once you believe something is worth it, you will pay whatever costs. That's why when you go into the you know, car dealership, never let the salesman know you think whatever they're trying to sell you is really worth it. Because they will just, they know they can charge you anything. No. But when it comes to God, our first thing is God is your plan worth it? Is your church worth it? Is being a healthy church, is advancing your kingdom in this world that so desperately needs you, is it worth it? Because if it's worth it, I will pay any price. No price is too high. So before we count the costs, which by the way, we're going to talk about next week, the first question is, is it worth it? And I can't really answer that for you. I'd like to be able to answer it for you. I'd like to be able to tell you why you should, you should understand that, that, that God's kingdom in this world is, is more than worth it. It is really the only hope for this world. That this, this world is thinking that it's progressing, but it's actually racing headlong into either some form of tyranny, some form of authoritarian oppression, or complete fracturing. The only other alternative is that they're going to have to create a new, you know, kind of story that will unite us. And if you, if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, if you read the news, if you, you know, even watch movies and, and you know, see these uh, you know, TV shows and read books and things like that, people are trying to do it. They're trying to come up with a reason to hold society together. And all of those reasons just fall apart. Because there's nothing that's considered absolute by, by most of the world. So as soon as you can come up with a reason, I can come up with a reason not to. It's a fragile world that we're living in. And so, do we believe it's worth it? Well, see, the world, I, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, is increasingly becoming attractive to the love part of Christianity. And they like those words like peace and joy. And they want to have the good stuff that the Bible presents, that God promises. 
but they want to do it without Jesus. Oh, they like a certain version of Jesus. They like the kind of hippie Jesus that kind of walks around and teaches people and, you know, eats granola. They like that version of Jesus. But the Jesus that they have trouble with is that, is that Jesus that, that stood against hypocrisy. That Jesus that didn't just become friends of sinners, but he said, come out of your sin. He didn't just forgive the woman caught in adultery. He said, go and sin no more. They don't like the Jesus who on the cross is dying on the cross because he so believes that sin is real and not just misguided people and that the penalty of sin is death. He so believes it that he's willing to die for it. They don't want that Jesus. They don't want a bloody Christianity. And they really don't want the Jesus who, who rises from the dead. They don't, they, that's, those are myths for children to believe. All this supernatural stuff. We gotta leave that behind. But we'll take the good stuff. We'll take the love and we'll take the peace and we'll take the joy and we like the faith part. But we really don't want any of the rest. Well, I hope you understand that from how I understand the Bible, you can't have the rest if you don't have Jesus. You can have something like the rest, but you cannot have the rest. Not in its fullness, not in its permanence, not in to the degree that you will, you will ask God to show favor to your enemies. So, we come to this passage where Jesus, you know, he had, you know, last week he had been in this, this Pharisee's home and he was talking to this group and now it tells us that he's gone outside and this large crowd is following him and, and as we talked about, this is like the height of, of Jesus mania with, with thousands of people flocking to be around him and, and whenever he would go from one place to another place, they would run and press in and try to be as close as possible to, to see Jesus. They were so excited to, to hear what he would have to say and to, and to see what he would do. And so then Jesus here, and which you would think like, if we had like 10,000 people here, you would be like, okay, okay, Pastor Matt, say that thing that's going to keep all 10,000 here. Or say that thing that, that's going to at least keep 5,000 here. Or say that thing that will at least keep 1,000 here. And Jesus does the opposite. Because Jesus wanted to draw the crowds. He wanted them to hear his message. He wanted them to see his power. But it, more than any of that, he wanted them to know the truth. He wanted them to know what it meant to follow him. He could have kept the tens of thousands following him. He could have built it to hundreds of thousands. 
But that's not why he was there. He was there to tell them the truth. He was there to tell them what the world is really like. And he was there to tell them that if you're going to try to be light in a dark world, a dark world is going to hate you. And they're going to persecute you. It's the high price of being a true disciple. See, as long as Jesus stayed kind of general, as long as he stayed theoretical or theological, as long as he kept it kind of ambiguous, like, oh, just love everybody. If we all just love one another, we'll all get along. As long as he was doing these miracles, or as long as he was standing up against their enemies and saying things that they're like, oh yeah, he's really giving it to the Romans today. He's really giving it to the Sadducees today. As long as he was doing that, they were fine. But as soon as he said, this is the personal cost of following me. Oh, they're gone. You see, they wanted a Messiah who would save them without asking anything from them. And they should have known better. If they just read the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, they would have seen that that. that few hundred years ago, a few centuries ago, when Israel was saying, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. The prophet at the time, Samuel, said, yeah, you'll get a king. But here's what the king's going to cost you. Your sons and your daughters. You're going to work hard in your fields, and you're going to pay part of that to the king. Still want a king? He wasn't saying that to be mean. He was saying that to to be real. He was saying that to say, you know, someday there is going to be the king of kings coming. And the king of kings, to follow the king of kings, there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a cost. And of course, I'm sure as soon as Jesus started talking about this, you know, if they had watches, they probably started looking at their watches They probably didn't have watches. They probably looked at their sundials. Or they started to start thinking about, man, tomorrow I got to make sure I take those sheep out. And maybe some of them thought like, did I forget to lock the door? I got distracted. And some were like, you know, we don't like this Jesus. And if they had done like an evaluation survey, which we're really fond of doing, You know, every time we have a conference, we do evaluation surveys. We evaluate our teachers. You can go online now, evaluate everything. People evaluate this church. Right? We love to evaluate. If they had done an evaluation of Jesus, they'd be like, oh, you know, Jesus wasn't so great today. Because, you know, he didn't do any miracles. And, you know, he was telling us hard things. That's where this text lives. And so when we look in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Talk about a downer. Jesus, look. You're getting so many people so excited about following you. And then you say something like this. If Jesus had a publicist, the publicist was like, oh, you know, coming out after, well, you know, that's what Jesus said. But that's not what he meant. What he really meant. That's what he really meant. What he really meant is, you need to follow Jesus. You need to follow me. This is how not necessarily important I am, but this is how difficult the battle is going to be. I remember when, when Desert Storm came out and, and then it was, there was so much going on that, that, that they, they had to start calling up reserves. And then, you know, a lot of these reserves were people that had gotten a scholarship to go to college. And at least some of them were honest. They're like, man, I never thought I had to go to a war zone. I just wanted to go to college. At least they were honest. But when you have war, when you have battles, there are costs. And if your soldiers are not willing to pay the cost, you will lose the battle. We are his soldiers. Are we willing to pay the cost? That's the question. Nothing. If you want to be part of the core of a healthy church, following Jesus Christ has to be the priority in your life, above all else. It's this thing that we've done to Christianity to make it all about, you know, trying to have a better life or a happy life and all of that. But let me just tell you something. I don't have time to unpack it all here today. But let me just tell you this. The secret to a better life, to a good life, is not to make having a good life the center of your life. The secret to a happy family is not making being a happy family the center of your life. The secret is to make Jesus the center of all things. He says, if you don't bear your own cross, if you don't come after me, you cannot be my disciple. We have kind of dumbed down Christianity. We've diluted Christianity. And we've fooled ourselves into thinking we can kind of have this partial Christianity. Kind of following him on things, certain things, but not following him on others. We can be at church and we can go to certain things and, and all, but we don't have to commit. And I don't blame you. Because unfortunately, it's the kind of Christianity that's been taught in the United States for I don't know how long. But it's wrong. 
It's not just wrong, it's harmful. Because we fill this place on Sundays all over the nation. There are churches filled on Sundays. But what difference does it make on Monday? Because everybody goes back to their private lives with their private Jesus. And they, and they maybe dispense a little bit of love here and there with an eyedropper. That is not Christianity. Christianity is when we are sold out, as they used to say, as we read in Romans, where we're living sacrifices. It's all His. And see, Jesus starts, He goes, He goes after this relationship. Why does He say father, mother, sister, brother? Why does He say that? Why does he pick that in that time, 2,000 years ago, and to these people, these Jewish people? He says it because, because that's the highest relationship that, that th those people would see in their lives. And it wasn't just because they just made that up. They, they understood. They understood that, that how important the family was. And, and that's, that would have been the case all the way back to, to the times of Moses. Where you have there in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. You later on have in Deuteronomy how important the family is to the kingdom because, because God places in the family this very important task of, of teaching generation after generation, passing down God's word from generation to generation. He placed it in the home. It was so important. The family was so important, not just from a, a practical standpoint, because that's true too. We know that, that healthy societies, healthy communities have healthy families. And here, Jesus starts there. He starts with this one that everybody knew was so important. And he, he tells them, your love for me your love for me is going to be such that if you have family that don't follow me, and that was going to be the case for most of the people listening to him, if your family doesn't follow me, they're going to think like you hate them. Because you're rejecting everything that they've said. You're rejecting everything that they believed in. You're rejecting, you know, a thousand years of tradition. You want to follow me, they're going to think you hate them. They're going to think you don't love them. Um, early Christians were actually called, they were called misanthropes. Misanthropes is this word we have in English, but it's a Greek word. It just means haters of mankind. The Christians lived in such a way that the rest of Roman society called them haters of mankind. And it wasn't because they were doing bad things to people. It's because they wouldn't participate in these, in these festivals and all these other things that were in the culture. They're called haters of mankind. Jesus is saying, that's, what's, that's what they're going to think. 
They're going to think you're hating them because you're following me. This is totally different, by the way, if the whole family's following Christ. If the whole family's following Christ, different. Because they're all going in the same direction. But it's when the one person, that one person, the first one in the family that stands up, they have to be willing to risk that the rest of the family will hate them. It's crazy. Because Jesus is saying, your relationship to me has to be this highest relationship. It's not just the highest relationship. It becomes the context for all other relationships. Paul unpacks this later in some of his letters, but just, just to kind of give you the picture of it, it's, it's that if we're Christians... If in my family, my wife and I are Christians, my wife is first my sister in Christ and secondly my wife. If my children are Christian, my children are first my sisters in Christ and only secondarily my daughters. They don't cease being my daughters. They don't cease my, my wife doesn't cease being my wife when we become Christians. But our primary relationship to one another is based on our relationship to Christ. You see, when we do this, we prevent one of the biggest problems that happens in the, church, in the, in the Bible, and we prevent creating an idol. And a lot of well-meaning, well-meaning people a lot of well-meaning pastors have done something that needed to be done, which is, which is try to refocus even Christians on families. But they've tried to refocus Christians on families without communicating why we need good families. We don't need good families just to have good families. We don't need good families just so children can, can, can grow up in stable homes. All of those things are important. And surveys show that families that grow up, that, that raise their children in a, in a healthy church and in a healthy Christian family, that those children are much less likely to have so many of the problems that other people have. Yes, that's all true. But that's not why. That's not the ultimate reason. Because when we don't make the ultimate reason that we want to have strong families, we want to have good families, so that our families can then go and help advance God's kingdom in this world. When we don't make that the ultimate reason, we create an idol of our families. So hear me, I'm not telling you you shouldn't want to have a good, healthy family, but you have to understand why God wants us to have good, healthy families. What Jesus does is he creates this context for all these other relationships, but he also restores the kingdom purpose of all other relationships. He, he restores the kingdom purpose. And like we said, it's, 
in the Bible, it's said how important the family is, how important the husband-wife relationship, how important the parent-child relationship. And this is where we have to believe and we have to trust God. But again, I, there's statistics that show us that this, this actually works, that, that if we're going to be a kingdom family, if we're going to be a family that exists for God's kingdom, Christ has to be above all. It doesn't mean, again, you shouldn't have, want to have a good family or a happy family. You can do that. But I think as Christians, our main goal should be to have a kingdom family. A family that, that's not perfect, that's going to have problems. You're going to fight. You're going to disagree. You know, children are going to grow up and be grouchy, self-centered teenagers, and then they're going to keep growing, hopefully. Husbands and wives, they're going to argue. They're going to fight. They're going to disagree. But when we're a kingdom family, when, when we make Christ the center of all, what we do is we make an outpost in our community where people who might not ever come to church We'll get to see, we'll get to see the gospel in action. We'll get to see God's love. We'll get to see reconciliation and forgiveness. They'll get to see how you, as believers, work through problems. And how that's so different from what they did. A kingdom purpose. See, I think when the kingdom purpose for our families is restored, I think when the kingdom purpose for all our relationships are in, re restored, we get better families. We get better relationships. The principle is simple. A healthy relationship to Jesus leads to healthier relationships everywhere else, including with our families. And when we have healthy relationships with our families, we have healthier churches. And when we have healthier churches and communities, the kingdom advances. You see, a lot of people just want to fix their family, whatever that means. You know, we don't use this term as much, although... I don't know, maybe we just got bored with it and it happened so much we decided to get rid of it. But it was this word that became very popular, dysfunctional families. People just want to fix the family, make them functional. We want Jesus to make us better just so that we can be better. And Jesus is like, no. I want you to be better so that you are an example of what I can do in people's lives. You know what else happens? What else happens is when, when Jesus becomes the priority, when, when, when our families, especially our families that are in Christ, become healthier, when, when we make Jesus the context for all things, now, you know what happens? Our families get bigger. A healthy church 
in a healthy church, we should all be family. We should all be a healthy family. We don't just call each other brothers and sisters. We treat one another as brothers and sisters. Our family expands. And yeah, I know you think about your family and you think about your weird uncle or your strange aunt. You go, I don't want more of them. You know, you got that knucklehead nephew. I don't want more of them. Yeah, I get it. But you should also think about those healthy family relationships you have. When you know you're not alone. When you know that when you're in need, you can call on them and they will be there. When you know that people miss you, they think about you. That you know that. They have your best interests at heart. Your family expands. Your family gets better. But that's not why we do it. We do it because it's the cost of following Christ. And that's what's so awesome about God. What's so awesome about God is he says, look, if you really want to love Jesus, if you really want to love God, if you really want to do this, then you have to follow You cannot just sit there and have good thoughts about God and good thoughts about Jesus. You have to follow. You have to obey. You have to do. But, but, if you will, if you will, I will bless you with more family than you can deal with. I will make the same promise to you that I made to Abraham. Your family will be as countless as the stars. And you know about that earthly family you have? You know what I'm going to do with them? I'm going to give you a better version of that family than you could have ever had on your own. It may not be the version you think you want right now. But I'm going to give you that family that becomes that kingdom outpost wherever you are. That becomes this great example of my love and my grace and my forgiveness and my reconciliation that displays my power. Yeah, following Jesus costs us everything. But the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because if it's not worth it, we should stop fooling ourselves. We will never be a healthy church unless we believe the cause of Christ is worth everything we have. Everything. We'll never be a healthy church. We won't even be able to take steps towards a healthy church. And if you do say, okay, I'm ready, we can't say, I'm, I'm ready, but I'm expecting God you to, for you to bless me. I'm expecting for you to, to give me stuff back. No. 
If it's all his, it's all his. If it's worth it, it's worth it. I'm just telling you that from my experience, what God often does is he often gives us back abundantly more than what we give. So the question, as we reflect today, as we look at, are we willing to commit to the cause? Are we willing to say, we will, we will be part of a healthy core of this church? Is do we love Jesus more than we love ourselves? Do we love Jesus more than our families or whatever we hold most dear? And are we willing to follow?